Welcome to the Grinders Table, the podcast where we sit with C-suite executives and founders who are taking their industry by storm to figure out how you can build an exceptional career and business. Together, we'll try to uncover how they have both defined the odds and what you can learn from their experience. Hi everyone, it's another episode on the Grinders podcast. The last few episodes have been amazing. We've averaged about 5,000 listeners per episode and I'm really, really excited for everybody that has subscribed and have been sharing with their friends. And today is not so different. We have an amazing person um, on the podcast today. Um, again, I don't like introducing people and uh, I'll allow Dio introduce herself. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Dio Odunate Ademolan. I'm the Managing Director for Nigeria for Brand International Financial Services. Great to be here. Awesome, awesome. But you know, that intro is just so short. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd like us to take a peek behind who Dio is. What, what exactly motivates you? Who is Dio? So let's let's strip back your work at Branch, we will we'll come to. Um, who exactly is Dio? Oh, that's, a, that's a, an interesting question to try to answer. Um, who am I? I'm oof, work-wise, a financial services professional. Um, I've been, the last few stops in my career have been financial services. I started out working in technology, um, in finance and strategy for a software company. Um, then moved on to telecommunications before I ended up in um, a strategy role in banking, um, led a an innovation fund for a couple of years, and that's how I ended up where I am. Personally, um, I'm a wife, I'm a mother of one, I'm a friend to a few, an acquaintance of many, and uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much me in a nutshell, I think. <laughs> you in a nutshell. Okay. Um, well, hindsight is um, 50-50 or 20-20, however good anybody, people say that. Um, did you see yourself leaving or living this life that you're living right now, say 10, 20 years ago? Honestly, no. Um, I think if this is very interesting, because I was just having this conversation yesterday with a, with a close friend of mine. Um, I think if as much as I continue to remain ambitious and, you know, looking forward to doing even more, I think, you know, 10 years ago, if 10, 15 years ago, if you had said to me that I'm doing what I'm doing now, both on a personal and a prof- on professionally, I think it would absolutely have blown my mind. And I think we don't spend enough time sort of appreciating that, appreciating where we've gotten to in both our personal and professional lives and I just happened to be reflecting on this yesterday. So it, that's a long way of saying the answer to your question. Absolutely not. I didn't see myself here and in many years back. Do you regard yourself as successful? Uh, I think 15 years ago, Dial would definitely see 2023 Dial as being very successful. Um, me looking at myself now, not really. Like I, I, I think there's so much more I want to do. Um, that, yeah. So that's that's a very interesting question, actually, because I'm thinking about it as I'm answering. Yeah, I think I'm successful. I don't think I'm at the pinnacle of what success could be, but yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely made significant progress over the last several years. Um, you know, 
compared to where I was. So, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, the reason I ask this question is, and uh, as you've sort of alluded to, as we grow in life, we find that what we define as success kind of changes based on how well, how well we attain our goals and, and all that, or how our vision broadens and all that. Um, what will you then define as success? Success for me is um, being happy um, in every regard, right? So being content in every regard. So I'm constantly sort of striving forward. So success for me is, um, do I live in the kind of home that I want to live in? You know, yes. Do I, you know, is my son happy and 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 fulfilled and, you know, growing by leaps and bounds? Absolutely. Am I doing something in my career that I care about um, and I'm being rewarded for? Yes. Do I, you know, enjoy the people that I work with? Do I enjoy what it is I do? Yes. So I think, you know, success is sort of, there's a bunch of boxes to tick off, I think, to, as as whatever your personal definition of success is. Um, and for me, yeah. And again, but all of those things I mentioned, um, you know, both personally and professionally, there's so much more that I want to be doing. And there's so much more that I think I could be doing. So, um, yeah, some days I feel successful. Other days I'm like, you know, you could you could be ruling the world, but you're not. So are you successful? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I knew I knew that feeling also, and I knew a lot of our listeners um, also experienced that that emotion. Now, going to your professional life, um, you you've had if it, I, I would define as a good career, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say are the beliefs or your values that have that have, that have helped you grow in this your career? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for me. Um... And if I look at everything that I've done outside of my first few years out of college, right, while I was doing it, I wouldn't say it was part of a grand plan, but looking back on it now, um, it's always been number one, do I, do I care about the actual work and what the impact of the work could be? Um, and I see now that that's been the leading uh, question that I've I've tried to answer when deciding whether or not to take a role, um, and that's the path that I've been on. So, for example, when I joined Made One, um, soon after I moved back to Nigeria, I that story for me was fascinating. Right. So, first of all, it was a woman who was leading uh, the woman being for Kwike, who was leading this mm-hmm. fantastic you know, project, $120 million project that was the first of its kind in this part of the world. And, you know, it was a woman leading WAP, so that was fascinating to me. But then the other thing was the impact that landing a subsea fiber optic cable in Nigeria was going to make for just internet penetration and just being able to change people's lives and people's livelihoods and what it is they can do because they have this fast access to the internet for me blew my mind and that's why I enjoyed that project and just to be a part of that story. Um, the same thing for my, my my next role after that, which was joining you at Union Bank, um, you know, to to lead to that as the as the corporate strategy manager. That was also a super interesting story to me because it was effectively a hundred year old start startup, right? So Union Bank, second oldest bank in Nigeria, um, 
had fallen, you know, on hard times in the years prior to 2012, a group of investors come together and put in $500 million into this bank. And then a team of which I was part of it was brought in to transform the bank. You know, so I worked on the strategy and transformation team. And that for me was because soon after I joined and was trying to, we were doing the strategy work to try to figure out um, where can we play and how can we win as a bank. And the one thing that most Nigerian banks have neglected was actually true retail banking, right? So retail banking for the true retail customer, not the, you know, the high net worth customer, you know, how do you transform that? And that's the, that's, that's, you know, where at the time we decided to play and how to do that. Um, and the impact that would have was amazing to me. It was fascinating to me. And so that work was super impactful for me as well. Um, then going off to, to business school and okay, what am I going to, what am I going to do next? Prior to that, I'd worked in, uh, I'd worked in finance and banking and also in technology of this, you know, this emerging you know, fintech, right? So that, that was super interesting to me and started out by leading a fintech innovation fund, um, for a couple of years and then ended up doing what I'm doing today, which also, you know, all of that has for me great impact in being able to, the kind of users that we, 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 um, the kind of users that we have at branch, um, you know, that get loans and, and, and other banking services from us have largely been neglected by, you know, the commercial banks in Nigeria. So again, you know, having that impact. So to answer your question for me, like my North star has always been doing something that's impactful, um, you know, but obviously has to make sense business wise. Right. So, um, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's my North yeah, star. Yeah. I totally agree with you, you know, being at that nexus of, of impact, but also you have to make money for the organization or everything goes bust. Um, talking about the work uh, um, that Branch does, and you've really, really done amazing in leading the efforts of Branch, especially in Nigeria. Um, we all know there's this ongoing push towards financial inclusion. And also, you know, there's this proliferation of digital banking solutions and all that. How is Branch staying ahead of the curve and adapting to be, to be competitive? Oh, because the stats will tell you that, you know, if you have a bank account or you have a wallet or something like that, then you're financially included. But if you dig deeper into those statistics, you find, you know, something in the order of like less than 3% of Nigerians have access to credit, to formal credit. Um, and if you dig deeper into that and realize why, you know, we have very big, very successful banks in Nigeria, why aren't they? servicing that customer because they cannot profile that customer profitably. Um, they cannot give that customer a credit score and say, under these circumstances, I can lend to that, to that user unsecured credit. Um, and their cost to serve is, is massive, right? So if you think about having to maintain 500 or a thousand branches across Nigeria and Nigeria being Nigeria, that means you have to secure them, you have to staff them, you have to power them. And all of that, if you add all of that in, then it doesn't make sense for you to put in your efforts to lend 10,000 naira, which is, you know, which can be life-saving credit to, to a customer. Um, and so that's who we are targeting at Branch and who we've so far successfully been able to target. 
how do we stay ahead of the curve? Being able to, um, you know, the, the, the main thing, at least on the credit side of things, is just getting better and better and better at profiling users correctly, um, at, at scoring users correctly, so that, you know, you're not losing money, you're not, you know, throwing good money after bad, basically, by lending to these particular users. And I think that's the secret sauce. Like, how do you make lend credit decisions to be able to say that based on this information that I have, I can successfully uh, lend 50,000 there to OM and I'm, I have a very, very high reasonable chance that OM is going to pay me back when he's supposed to pay me back. So just refining that algorithm, but I think we, we, we do pretty good work there. Um, that's the secret sauce. And then also just, you know, it might sound trite, but, you know, treating your users the way you would want to be treated, right? So the customer truly coming first um, and, you know, developing a suite of products that basically says you're able to access things like debit cards, um, high yield savings, um, a one lets transfers, pay your bills, all of those things successfully and easily. And, and, um, that's again, part of what I think the secret sauce is to be able to say, you just continue to do that and you stay ahead, but at least, you know, you, you have a reasonable chance of success. And also think about the fact that, you know, the market is huge. Um, so there's actually a fair amount of space for everyone to be somewhat successful, maybe not everyone, but a few players to be, to be reasonably successful. Mm. Talking about um, the markets, yes, we know it's huge, but <laughs> it's very risky doing business in, and in, in our clients, right? Um, and a big part of leadership is, um, managing risks. Um, how do you ensure that you're taking risks? Again, there's no right answer to this. How do you ensure you're taking risks? but also minimizing potential ne negative outcomes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is taking a somewhat conservative approach to everything that we do. That's my leadership style. Um, and hedging your bets as best as you can. You're absolutely right. You know, markets is huge, but it's also super risky and like it's huge and small at the same time, let's put it that way. Um, so it's just, you know, hedging your bets as best as you can, um, making sure your foundations are strong. I would, you know, run a technology business. So all the possible safeguards that could be in place to make sure that you're secure, that your users are secure, like, you know, people that have trusted us with their money, um, as much as possible to prevent, you know, fraud prevention, both using, um, uh, people and technology as well to do that taking a conservative approach so for example in the last um over the last year and a half two years we've gone from a focus on growth and growth at all costs to profitability and sustainability right and i think that's a shift that um you know a lot of venture-backed entities across the world have made in the last year, but we started that even earlier. So every single decision that we make has to make sense. The returns on every investment that we make has to be positive for us to go ahead and do that. And I'm sure, you know, like with, with venture backed businesses that you spend, if you spend, you know, your first several years burning cash to grow. And then after that, you figure out how you're going to be profitable, but we made that switch 
earlier on. So, you know, shrank the, the overall size of our loan book, um, you know, to make sure that we are servicing the very best customers and the least uh, risky customers that we possibly can. Um, make sure that our spreads are good on every loan that we take, which is just basically our profit margin on every loan that we, we, we disperse is high. Making sure that all the other products pay for themselves, you know, so everything, you typically start out saying like you're getting everything free. Chances are free, um, both incoming and outgoing, you know, paying bills will give you discounts and cashback and all of those things because your main focus is growth. So right now, my focus is growth with an eye, an eye on profitability. So everything has to make sense. So you manage that risk to, to answer your question more specifically, you manage that risk by making sure you're building a sustainable business. And that's what at least I'm trying to do. Yeah, I, I, again, I absolutely agree with you. And the reason I asked this question is we are having a conversation with some friends yesterday and we sort of saw that a lot of things that happen in business world can also happen in personal life, you know, where you're going from that attitude of grow at all costs to is this actually beneficial for my long-term future? Um, you know, how am I balancing my acts to ensure that while I'm making money, but I'm also growing my career and, you know, 10 years down the line, I, I wouldn't regret making some of these decisions. And I thank you for, you know, you know, lending your thoughts on this. Um, what is the most transformation experience you've had in your life and has it changed the way you see the world? The most transformational experience. Uh, that's interesting. I think I would say for me personally, and I'm assuming you mean this on a personal front, on a professional front, but it's, it would quite honestly be um, the loss of my dad. So 11 years ago, my father passed away 11 years ago. Um, and for two years prior to that, he was quite, he was, he was ill. So he had cancer. So that was actually the, the you know, when he was diagnosed with cancer, it was actually the impetus for me to move back to Nigeria because I was living in America, been in America for over a decade at the time. And I basically packed up my things, quit my job, you know, put, put in, um, you know, sold my car, actually gave away my car put my stuff in storage and quickly moved back to Nigeria. Very soon after, I was told about his diagnosis. Now, my father and I were extremely close. Um, you know, he was my biggest champion. I'm bold, particularly as a woman today, because as far as my father was concerned, my entire life up until that point, there's absolutely nothing that I couldn't do if I put my mind to it. You know, whether it was playing on the boys' teams in sports when I was younger to you know, chosen career paths or job or whatever it is. And, um, you know, so the last time I had seen him before that, and he was a very active guy as well. Um, the last time I had seen him before that, again, super active, you know, I did fine to his seventies. He could probably outrun me. Um, and then I came back to Nigeria and by the time I came back, he was paralyzed from the waist down, like he couldn't walk. And that was jarring to me. Um, he eventually regained the ability to walk. He got better before the the final decline. But that entire experience, I don't think I had thought about um, mortality up until that point. Like for me personally, like it, it was a concept that you know I sort of understood in theory. But watching this person that was super close to me slowly decline and you know dying in the end um, completely changed 
my thoughts and my life around mortality. I had never thought about existing in the world without being able to pick up the phone and talk to my dad, wherever it was uh, I happened to be. I had never really thought about that. And then the second thing was after his passing, the stories and testimonies of people who he had met in passing, who, you know, were acquaintances, you know, aside from his, his very close friends, so he was an eye surgeon. Um, and, you know, aside from his close friend and the things they had to say about, you know, when I had this problem and, you know, I saw Dilio Donate, this happened 30, 30 years ago. And it basically saved my life or saved my job or saved my family or did this or whatever, or had this huge impact in my life. And, you know, that got me more thinking about legacy, which again, at the time, you know, I, I was in my late twenties or early thirties at this point, had no thoughts about, had not really considered, um, what sort of legacy will you be leaving behind? What have you done? Like these stories are, are really what, you know, pass on, you know, the fact that I can walk into a room and somebody says, sees my last name and says, are you needed to X, Y, Z? And you say yes. And you get favor from that because, you know, it's not a money thing. It's not anything like that. It's just that person had a great encounter with, you know, your father at some point and is willing to help you however they can and, and, you know, sort of, um, pass that on. So. It changed the way I thought about my life personally, the way I thought about my life professionally, um, that entire experience. And, you know, it was over a period of two plus years from when he was first diagnosed to when, to when he passed away. Yeah. Solid, solid and powerful story. It just reminds me of something my wife often says that, um, her goal oftentimes is to leave people better than the way she met them. And I think that that's absolutely a great way to leave. You all that you have been listening to Dio at Deimola. Hope I didn't get the name wrong. And managing <laughs> um, director for um Branch Nigeria. And um some of you all sent questions. Shout out to Jockey and Blessing for sending in questions. Um and um, in rounding up, we'll just quickly take some of those questions. Um Blessing asked, can you share a story about a time when you had to confront your own biases? And what did you learn from that experience? Wow. Well, that's a tough question. Can I take a second question first? I'll come back to that. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. And um, the second question was, how did your upbringing and your background change your perspective or shape your perspective and your values? And maybe you've kind of answered that because you talked about your dad. Yeah. And, you know, but to answer that question more specifically, I think, actually, I can probably answer the two questions at once. So, the I confronted the world as a child, a teenager, a young woman, as an adult, with the full confidence that there's nothing that I cannot do. Like there's nothing out there that I decide that I want to do um, and I can't do it. That was just my worldview. And that was shaped almost 100% by my dad. My mother, absolutely. But for a girl child, to have that instilled in her by her male parent, I think is an extremely powerful thing. And that boldness is how I've confronted many, many things in my life. Now, this doesn't, this that's, that's not to say that I don't have doubts in myself or my abilities, or I don't have fears about, you know, failure and, you know, not being able to do something that 
I think I should be doing. Absolutely not. It's just, you know, it's not, you know, as they say, courage is not the absence of fear. It's you doing it in spite of that. And that courage, I think, was huge for me um, because of my relationship with my father. And, you know, in, in, and in his family, for example, like his, his eldest sister, his father, who was a successful person but wasn't extremely wealthy, in the early, like in the 20s and 30s, was educating his daughters the same way he was educating his son, or sending them to university in England in the 20s and 30s and 40s, the same way he was for his son. So my father also had that background of, you know, particularly professionally, that there's absolutely nothing women, you know, he never confronted life, and which made him fairly unique as a Nigerian man of, of his generation. Now, if I go back to your first question about confronting my biases, it's having the patience sometimes when I'm dealing with women professionally that why are you doubting yourself so much? You know, why why can't I hear your voice in a meeting? Um, why are you so timid, you know, in a room, you know, if a man is speaking and I know you have thoughts about this, but you choose not to speak. Now that my bias was women are bold and women, you know, speak out and, you know, women are confident in the face of men telling them that they shouldn't be doing things or they shouldn't be in certain spaces. That's my worldview, you know, because of my upbringing. But of course, you know, I, I mean, it, it should be clear that many women don't have that and many women don't have that confidence. They've spent their entire lives being told that they are less than, starting from their parents, particularly their fathers, you know, the boys that they meet in school, everything, telling them you know, even other women telling them that 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 they're less than, and they should, you know, you shouldn't be striving to be in certain spaces. You shouldn't be striving for things like that. And you know, that's their reality, and that's you know the worldview that they bring to the office or to their work or to whatever it is to their art, whatever it is they're doing. So me having that complete impatience with, um, with people to say, with women in particular to say, why are you so quiet? Why are you so timid? You know, you know, you can't do this. That was my bias, and how that changed for me was, you know, a particular encounter somebody that I was working with, um, if several years ago, and somebody saying, pointing it out to me that I, why are you so impatient with this particular person? Not in an abusive way, but just like you can't be doing more, you should be doing more. Realize that not everybody has the same, had the same upbringing you have or the same background or whatever. So then that shifts my perspective to then becoming that champion for that for that person particularly women in the workplace right and you know mentor as much as i can and advise as much as i can and just be like you know try to instill what was instilled in me at a very young age in other in other women but that's actually a powerful lesson because um recently i wrote about the cost of knowledge and basically empathic leadership where we oftentimes assume that everybody sees it from our own worldview mm -hmm. and it takes empathy for you to flag that and say hey because i'm at this level doesn't mean that other people actually can operate at this level based on mm -hmm. things like you mentioned so um that's that's actually really really solid thank you so so much for spending the last 30 minutes or so with us um as we round off um, i have one more question for you and and this is for the listeners what advice do you give? Would you give your younger self, knowing what you know now, and what key lessons um, 
in your professional journey do you think would be would be great for young people? Advice to my younger self. Hmm. One would it be don't be so hard on yourself. Um, you know, I I've tended to be very impatient with myself because I have very high expectations of myself. Um, so one would be just, you know, be kinder to you and be kinder to yourself and have less have some empathy for whatever sort of period in your life you're in. Um, I think that's super important and something I'm still learning. Um, sorry, what was the second part of your question? And um, advice to younger people as they grow their career and even entrepreneurs as they build their businesses. Yeah. It's just, I, I, I think, you know, um, it might sound trite, but I think it's extremely powerful, which is sort of your knowledge is your power. Like never, don't let anybody know more than you in the thing that you're trying to do. But the flip side of that is also surround yourself with people who know things you don't know and who can do things you can't do. So if you're an entrepreneur trying to build a business, if you're you know a leader trying to build a team, whatever it is, surround yourself with the smartest people in the areas um, that that you need pillars in, right? So don't think that you know everything and nobody should know. You shouldn't be sitting in any room with people who know more than you do. You should. And I know those two things sound like opposites, but they actually, to my mind, complementary. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with it. Um, I often tell people you should not be a village champion. I mean, if you're smarter than everybody in the room, then you need to actually change the room. And then again, you're a sum total of the people you surround yourself with. So you know, it's important to surround yourself with people that would actively help you get to where you want to be. So yep. thank you so much for spending the last few minutes speaking with us. Um, this was really, really enjoyable. And I'm actually going to go back and listen to it again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Uwe, and thanks for this opportunity. It was great to be here. That's all on today's episode of The Grinders Table. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Monsieur OM. That's at Monsieur for Miss Time French OM. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.